Well, good morning. Oh, that was, that was pretty good for the first time. Good morning. Better. Hey, uh, if you're one of our pirate ship kids, if you're one of our pirate ship kids, K through second grade, you guys can go ahead and head to the back. Mr. Ben's back there. He's waving his hand. There you are. If you're one of our pirate ship kids, if you're one of our battleship kids, you're actually going to stay in here with us this morning. So if you're a pirate ship kid, you can go ahead and go. I'm actually going to turn this monitor off. It's humming something terrible up here. So anyway, hey, uh, so my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here uh, on staff at the church at Cane Bay, and we are delighted that you guys are here this morning. Can you guys hear me okay? I feel like I can't hear myself up here. You guys hear me okay? We're good? Cool. All right, great. Um, Excited to be in uh, Genesis 3 again this morning. We've been working through this series called Beginnings. We started way back at the uh, beginning of the summer. Uh, Funny. Uh, We started back at the beginning of the summer and worked all the way through Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, We've worked all the way up to the end of Genesis 3, which is where we're going to be this morning. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 3. While you're doing that, let me ask you uh, this question. Anybody remember uh, what happened on April 15th of this year? Anybody remember? April 15th? Okay, tax day, yeah, okay, but but what else? There was something pretty significant in the history of our country happened April 15th. Anybody know? Nobody. We've forgotten. It's been four months. We've already forgotten. So April 15th was the Boston Marathon bombing. That, that, that happened in our country like four months ago. Everybody cool? Remember the Boston Marathon bombing? Okay. Remember watching the Boston Marathon bombing when that kind of happened and, and when nobody really knew there was explosions at the site. And then like all of a sudden as news starts to trickle in and we start watching all these things begin to happen. Um, it, it was just this uh, incredible stream of images that just kept coming and coming and coming of, of people just wounded and hurt in the street. And people were killed by, these ter- by this terrorist attack on American soil in a major U.S. city in Boston. And I just remember, just probably like you, watching all of this kind of take place over the next couple hours and over the next couple of days as they start finding these guys that are responsible and they're hunting these things down and you're starting to see the fatality count and, and, the, and the wounded and all of these things just start to rise. And I just remember it was almost like watching, um, it was almost kind of like watching back on September 11th or some of the other terrible things that have just happened over that period of 15 years. I just sat there and watched these things with just this like heaviness. You know, this like heaviness in my chest and just like, gosh, I, I can't believe that these things are happening again here in America. And it was just this uh, overwhelming sense of uh, kind of like help, helplessness, you know, like what can I even do about that? And, and, and I remember, though, that as the days kind of wore on, we, we got to see some different sides of the Boston Marathon bombing. We started to see pictures and hear stories of people that, like, ran towards the explosions and, and all these different things that, that people were, were really beginning to help. And, and one thing that really stuck out to me, I don't know if you guys have seen this or not, but uh, soon after the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, Boston Magazine actually put out a picture, uh, put out an edition of their magazine with, with this picture as their cover. And I stumbled across this um, just on the internet one morning, and, and it's, it's a picture, as you can see, um, maybe in the back there, of, of it's, a, it's a heart, but it's made out of shoes. And, and those are shoes that people actually wore during the Boston Marathon, and they donated it to this picture. And inside, I know you probably can't see it from where you are, but it just says, we will finish the race. And I remember looking at this picture and going, wow, that's, that's hopeful. Like, like that, that really struck a chord with me the morning that I, that I was looking at that. And I just thought that's, that's hopeful in the midst of kind of this despair, in the midst of this kind of helplessness, in the, in the midst of kind of this heaviness that 
they're, they're seeds of, of hope. That, that life's going to go on. That, that we're going we're gonna to continue to move on as a society. And that those who perpetrated this are going to be brought to justice. That we're going to begin to see and hear stories of healing. And how people are moving on and moving past and getting stronger. And I just remember just kind of feeling hopeful. Even in the midst of heaviness. So what we're going to talk about this morning in Genesis chapter 3 is this idea of, see, uh, the, the, term, the sermon title is called Seeds of Hope, all right? And what we're going to read through on a very cursory reading in Genesis 3 can, can be very heavy. Um, and it can be almost kind of this helpless feeling might come over you. But if we read close enough, if we look close enough in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start to see some seeds of hope. We're going to start to see that, that God, even in the midst of, of, of the cursing of humanity here in Genesis 3, he's pointing them towards a better day and a brighter future. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have it on the screen. It's also on the back side of your handout. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, if you'd stop by our connection table on the way out, we have that. We would love to give that to you. You don't have to buy a Bible here. We want to give you that as a gift. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, if you do have a Bible and you just didn't bring it or it just sits in the back seat of your car, don't take that Bible. Like, just bring yours. Um, but it, that, that's kind of theft. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible, we, we want you to take that. That's our gift to you. So if you've got your Bible, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Genesis 3, starting in 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she is the mother of all, the, she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Now, if this is your first week here in this series, you're going to be like, wow, that's depressing. Like, I can't believe that God would just like lay the smack down on people like that. But, but if you've missed out, you, you've seen, this is Genesis 3, 14 through 24 is a culmination of a story that's been working this way. We read in Genesis 1 that God created all things. And, and six times in Genesis 1, God says he looked at what he created and it was good. And then it says that he creates man and woman. And it says that he looks at man and woman and he says that it is what? 
Very good. There's a distinction there. He's created man differently than he's created anything else up to this point. And it says that man is created in the image of God. Not tigers were not created in the image of God. Fish were not created in the image of God. Man was created in the image of God. And it says that God and man have a special unified relationship. And God says that he gives the man all of this garden that he's created, this perfect, ideal, utopian environment for the man and his wife, and he gives it to him. And he says, this is yours. I want you to steward this. I want you to take your wife whom I've given you and be fruitful and multiply, which is an incredible command in the Bible. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, there we go. Uh, So, and God does all of these things for the man. And he says, there's one thing, don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, some people are like, why didn't, why did that happen? What God is doing with this command is he is establishing his authority over man. He's saying, I've got one rule. I'm just going to tell you, don't do this. Don't eat of this tree. It is for your good. And it establishes God's authority over man. That man is like God, but man is not God. And in the beginning of Genesis 3, we read where the serpent comes in and he deceives the woman. And he says, did God really say, and we've worked through this the last few weeks, and it says that man listens to his wife and he takes of the tree and he eats. And what happens then is sin enters into the garden and it fractures God's good design for the way that he had built and created this environment to work. And because God is holy, the idea of holiness means that God is perfect. He is without blemish. He is without sin. That doesn't just mean that everything God does is right and good. It means that everything God is, is right and good. Because God is holy and man is now sinful, this relationship has been fractured. And we read here that God, because he is holy, must punish man's sin. But God does this. He deals with man in in, in three ways. Um, So I want to look at that this morning. The ways that God deals with man after his fall, after his sinfulness. Three ways that God deals with man after his fall. The first is consequence. First is consequence. So we've seen that God is holy and man is now sinful. When when God created man, what he he did, you can almost picture it this way. that, That God and man were joined. Okay, everybody take your hands and put them up like this. Okay, yep, just like this. There you go. All right, God and man were joined at the, at the beginning. Okay, and it says that man sinned. And what that does is it has broken this. Everybody go like this. All right, we're going to get it. Okay, it's now been broken. And there is no way for man to put this back right. There's broken, it's fractured, there's, there's difference, there's separation now between God and man. And because God is holy and man is sinful, God is right to punish man's sin. Um, how many of you guys know what, the, what, what treason is? Anybody know what treason is? Anybody been following this like uh, Edward Snowden case? Anybody been watching any of that? Okay, no? Okay, nobody watches CNN. Um, so uh, basically, the, the, you know, we, we've heard about the, the Snowden guy and how what he may have done might be considered treason. But some people are like, no, 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 what he did was right and good and down with the man and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, but, but what's the idea of treason? Treason is um, when someone goes against, um, goes against the, the ruling authority, either the, the government or the king or, or somebody's working to undermine. But it actually is deeper than that. Um, It's a violation of allegiance towards one's country or sovereign power. It is consciously and purposely acting to aid its enemies. It means that I'm working consciously and purposely against 
my country. That if you were guilty of treason, you were working consciously and purposely against the United States of America. What sin is, is sin is cosmic treason. What Adam has just done here is he is now working consciously and purposely against the authority and the purposes of God. And because God is creator and because God is holy and because God is just, he has to punish Adam's sin. Can't just let this slide by. In much the same way that someone who is treasonous should not just be able to just slide by. Why? Because he's actively working against the sovereign rule of power and authority. Sin is cosmic treason. So we see the way that God begins to deal out consequence. But first he addresses the serpent. He addresses all three parties who are available here. The serpent, the woman, and the man. He addresses the serpent first. And what does he say? He says, cursed are you above all livestock. You're going to crawl on your belly. The dust you shall eat. You're going to have enmity with man. This idea of crawling on the belly, did that mean that snakes have legs? Because if so, I'm going to be terrified of that tonight later. Anybody in here not like snakes? Come on, come on. Anybody in here, like, not sleep after you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark? That mess was terrifying. Like, I hate snakes. Like, I I went camping a little while ago, and one of the guys I went camping with, we had a deal. I was like, if you see a snake, you're going to know because you're going to hear this, like, shrill, high-pitched scream. And then I want you to just start shooting, like, immediately. Just just pepper the ground with whatever we've got. Take down whatever. Snakes, man. He says that you're going to crawl on your belly, and there's going to be enmity between you and man. He says there's going to be this, this you're, you're going to be the enemy of, man, he's talking specifically to snakes. And some of you guys might like snakes and be like, oh, snakes are great. I have them in my house. Weird. Ah, they're always watching. You can't tell what they're thinking. But the serpent is a, is a much larger picture than just the snake. He's not just cursing snakes because the serpent um, is representative of Satan. And Satan embodies the form of the serpent. And he comes and he tempts the man and the woman. So God says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curse the, the vehicle by which you've used. But, but now let me deal with Satan. And what does he say? He says in um, the end of 15, he says, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this um, is called the proto-euangelium. Okay, I don't expect you to remember that. Just remember this. This is called the first gospel. This is the first time in all the scriptures that the coming of one who would stamp out evil and Satan is promised. God's talking much larger than just a snake here. He's talking to Satan and he's saying, because you have tempted and drawn away the man and the woman, one day there's going to be Um, a son, there's going to be the seed of a woman, meaning there's going to be a human being that comes after that is going to stamp you out for good. He's going to crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. But a head wound is much deeper than a heel wound. He says he's going to stamp it out. This is the first time in all of scripture that we are promised that one day there will come someone who will stamp out all evil. And Satan knows this. Then God goes on to address the woman. And he says, I'm going to surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. God designed the woman. He designed the woman uniquely to bear children. He He tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And the way that he designed that 
to work is that the woman would bear children. She was uniquely designed. The woman's body was uniquely designed to to be a habitable environment for a child to bring forth children into this world. And what God says is because of your sin, now what you are uniquely designed to do, it's going to be painful for you to do. What I've uniquely gifted you to do, it's now going to be painful for you to do because of your sin. Because it fractured God's good design. But he also says something else. He says, and your desire shall be for your husband. Now that doesn't mean, um, now let me just say this. Your desire um, shall be for your husband doesn't just mean that like, oh, I'm only going to love my husband. That word for there could actually be translated against. Your desire shall be against your husband and he shall rule over you. What it says here is because of your sinfulness, now God created these unique, beautiful roles for man and for woman, that that the man was to be the, the leader, that he was to lovingly pursue and care for his wife, and she was to be his helpmate, the one who supported, the one who worked alongside of him. And what he's saying now is because of your sin, there, there's going to be a power struggle. There's going to be role reversal where the woman is going to seek to dominate the man. And it says that instead of the man now lovingly pursuing his wife, instead he's going to powerfully dominate her. He says this is a result of our sinfulness, that now these designs that God created to be good and and to work, he says now things are going to be flipped and and there's going to be enmity between you and your wife. The husband and wife now are going to battle for that power struggle. This is true. However, I wouldn't recommend using this in an argument with your wife. I wouldn't. Like, baby, you know what it says. Your desire should be for your husband. He shall rule over you. That's not going to work out well for you. It's this idea that, that now, because sin has entered in, it has fractured God's good design. And the man doesn't get off scot-free either. Next verses. He says to the man, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You, you see, when Adam was in the garden, what he, he lived in ease and abundance. Now, work is not a consequence of sin. Okay? Work was in the world before sin. Right? He put Adam in the garden to work it. Work is not a result of sinfulness. You know what's a result of sinfulness? Toil. Where we work and we work and we work and we're never satisfied with it. We always need more and the job's never done. We're we're toiling in this area. That's a result of sin. He says, what you're going to do now, Adam, is you're going to work, okay? In much the same way that I've designed you specifically to work and to cultivate the garden like I designed your wife to, to give birth uniquely designed her to bring life into this world. I've uniquely designed you to work and to cultivate the garden. What's going to happen now is you're going to work, but it's not going to come easy to you. There's not going to be an abundance. You're actually going to work for things and you're going to have to work really hard and you're not going to have enough. Again, it's a fracturing of God's good design. And he says, because of you, the ground itself is cursed. In Romans 1, we read about the creation is groaning towards God, waiting for the day that it will be redeemed. It says, not only, Adam, does your sin have repercussions for you, but it has repercussions for all of creation. And then he, and then he enters in this, he says, and you're going to go back to the dust from which you were brought out of. God institutes death as a result of sin. You want to know why we die? Because we sin. 
Death was not a part of God's good design. But when sin enters in, sin leads to death. And he says, Adam, you're going to die one day and you're going to go back to the dust from which you were drawn. That statement is God again establishing that he is creator and Adam is the created. He says, the dust that I formed you out of, one day you're going to go back to. There are consequences of sin that we read in Genesis chapter 3 that still play out today. Today. You, you, get, you can see this. You can see, so those of you that are married, you can see the consequence of sin in your marriage when there's, when, there's, when there's struggles between husband and wife. When a husband doesn't lovingly pursue and lead his wife, instead he seeks to dominate her. When a wife doesn't seek to um, uh, submit and, and work to support and care for her husband, instead she seeks to rule over him. We see that work out, the consequence of sin. Men, women, you see this when you work you work and you work and you work and you never seems to be enough. All of these things have come from Genesis chapter 3. And they're consequences of man's sinfulness. The second way that God deals with man, he provides for him. We have consequence, we have provision. Now, this is an interesting, interesting thought. That God gives a consequence, but he also provides for the man. There's consequence and there is provision. Um, it's, it's not that strange really to think about though. Like um, parents, if your child does something wrong, okay, if they sin against you or against their siblings, okay, you're going to discipline that child, right? And that's good and right and you should. But, but you're still going to what? There's still going to be food on the table, right? still going to work to provide for that child, even though it's been disciplined. And maybe one day it may get so bad that like you throw them from your house. You say, you've got to go, but you're still going to love them as your son, as your daughter. There's still this idea of provision. And we see this God as a loving father, even as he is punishing man for his sin, he's also providing for man in different ways. Look what he says. 20 and 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The first way God provides for the man and the woman is he allows life to continue. When when Adam names his wife Eve and says she's the mother of all the living, that means that things are going to go on. God was right and just here when man treasonously rebelled against him to stamp him out and be like, you know what, I'm done. But he doesn't. As a loving father, he continues to provide. He allows life to go on. He allows Adam and Eve to continue to multiply. He doesn't stamp out humanity here. He allows it to go on. That's a provision of God. The second way that God provides for them, he provides a cover for their shamefulness. Look at what he says. 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Now, we read back in verse 10 that it says that Adam, when God comes to look for Adam... And he says, where are you? Adam says, I was naked and I hid myself from you. He was ashamed of the fact that he was naked because when he had sinned, his eyes were open to understand what shame was. And it says that God, who, who told you that you were naked? Who introduced you to shamefulness? Because sin always introduces shame. And Adam is shameful. And it says that the that they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves that they might not be 
ashamed. And then in 21, it says that God provides garments of skin for them to cover their shame. Now, how would God have gone about doing this? What God would have done is he would have taken an animal and he would have killed the animal. And he would have used the animal's skin to provide garments for Adam and Eve. It's the first ever fashion show. He provides garments of skin for Adam and Eve, but it took the death of something else to cover the shame of man and woman. What this does is it institutes what in the Old Testament we would call the sacrificial system, where every year the priest would go into the temple and he would sacrifice a lamb or goat to God to, in order to cover the shame of the people. We read this all throughout the Old Testament. That we have this sacrifice, this animal sacrifice system where something has to die, blood has to be shed in order for the shame of men and women to be covered. And that starts way back here in Genesis 3. And God is the first one to kill an animal to cover the shame of man and woman. But it only does it temporarily. It only covers their shame temporarily because the, they would have to go back the next year and do it again. And the next year, and do it again. And the next year, and do it again. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. If not, it'll be on the screen. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1, says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You understand what he's saying there? He says that you're going to have to continue. If the way that we're covering sin is through animal sacrifices, through the death of an animal, you're going to have to continually come back and do this. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a remainder of sins every year. For for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What God has done here in the way that he's provided, he's provided a temporary cover for Adam and Eve's shamefulness. And he does that throughout the entire Old Testament. But what he is also doing is he is pointing towards a greater day, a brighter day where there would be one sacrifice that need not be repeated. He's setting in place this system so that the people would long for the day where there would be a sacrifice that would be good for all time. But it couldn't be a bull or a goat because the bull and goat can't take away sin. God provides for them by temporarily covering their shame. Third, he expels man from the garden. Now, this is deep theology here, so you're going to have to stay with me. You're going to have to stay with me just for a minute. So I can show you how it's God's provision to man that he expel them from the garden. Now, what was the garden? The garden was the presence of God. It was this perfect environment that God had created for man to live in, to flourish in, to steward in. It was this utopian society, this perfect environment for man. It says that God expels man from the garden. 22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. God sends man out of this perfect environment. Why? Now, God's having a conversation here. 
Okay? He's not talking to himself. He's talking, well, he sort of is talking to himself. It's this idea that God is speaking with the Trinity. That Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all present at creation. Now God is saying, unless he take out his hand and become like one of us. Now, what is this saying? It's saying that the tree in the garden of good and evil obviously has some sort of power to confirm the moral state of a human being. So what God says is he says, now that man has sinned, if he stays in the garden, what he might do, what he will do because of his sinfulness is go back to the tree and eat and thereby live eternally in a state of sinfulness. God says, I can't allow that to happen. I can't allow them to eat of the tree and live eternally sinful apart from me. So what does he do? Throws them out of the garden. He can't even bear the thought that man would eat of the tree and live eternally sinful with no hope of redemption, with no hope of having that relationship with God restored. So what does he do? He throws them out of the garden. God's exposing, expelling man from the garden and exposing him to the idea of physical death is grace. Why? Because God knows that in his physical death, man might find spiritual life. This is, this makes, um, when, when Jesus says really crazy, like kind of, kind of strange things, like in Matthew 16, 25, when he says, um, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's where we find this. That God says, I'm going to send you out of the garden and it's going to be grace to you so that you don't have, that you have an opportunity then to have this relationship restored. That God's sending man out of the garden was in a way grace to man. That one day he might be able to have that relationship restored. God expels sinful man from the garden. And the rest of human history is littered with man's attempt to get back into the garden apart from God. He expels man from the garden and the rest of human history is spent with man trying to get back into the garden apart from God. Let's look at the third part. third part is redemption. The third part is redemption. So if you look back at history, really not even history, if you look at recent history, you can see how man has attempted to get back into the garden. Now, what does the garden represent? Not the actual garden. I'm not talking about archaeology here. I'm talking about the idea of the garden, right? This perfect utopian society. And for all of human history, we've looked for different ways that are not God to get back in. The Pharisees used the law. They thought if they could just build enough laws, they would create a perfect society for man. And it doesn't work. We've tried reason. We've tried knowledge. Our forefathers tried democracy. That if we could just get a democratic state together, a republic built on liberty, then it would create this perfect utopian society. 
but it hasn't done it. Then we try to use technology. If we can just advance ourselves enough in science and technology, one day we'll create this perfect society. It hasn't worked. Then we tried education. If we can just get everybody educated enough, if everybody has access to education, then the world will be perfect. And it hasn't worked. We tried the redistribution of wealth. If everybody can just be wealthy, if everybody can just have the same level playing field, everybody will be happy. We tried um, healthcare. If everybody can just be healthy. And we've seen time after time after time, while these are good things, they do not fix the ultimate problem because none of these things are addressing the real problem. It's like taking Robitussin to try to cure lung cancer might help your cough, but it's not dealing with the root issue. The root issue, the problem with man is sinfulness. And until we have something that deals with sinfulness, everything else that we're doing is we're just treating a symptom of sin. We're just treating a symptom of sin. So we need someone or something that can deal with the root problem of humanity. And that's sinfulness. And we see that here. 24. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God expels man from the garden, and then he places at the, at the gate of the garden the cherubim with a flaming sword. Now, what is a cherubim? Okay, that's a fun word to say. Cherubim is an angel or a heavenly being that oftentimes represented the presence of God. On the Ark of the Covenant, there are two cherubim on the top of the Ark representing the presence of God. So when God places a cherubim at the gate of the Garden of Eden, what he's doing is he's saying that the garden is now guarded by God's presence. And every time we read about in Scripture someone coming in front of God's presence, we see what? That That he can't stand. That nobody, that sinful man cannot stand in the presence of God. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah goes and he sees a picture of God. And what does he do? He immediately falls on his face and he says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and from a people of unclean lips. When a prophet pronounced woe on something, what he's doing is he's pronouncing death on it. So when Isaiah, the prophet who has a book in the Bible, sees God, he falls on his face and says, Kill me. So how would you and I hold up? You got, a, you got a book of the Bible named after you? No. John in Revelation. John, the disciple that Jesus loved when he sees the glorified Jesus, says that he falls on his face as though he's dead. He's not giving him dap. He's not like, oh, Jesus, what up, dude? Good to see you again. He falls on his face as though he's dead because when someone stands in the presence of God as a sinful human being, doesn't work out well. No one can stand in the presence of God. It says that at the garden, the gate of the garden, man is thrown out and the presence of God now guards the garden and no one can stand in the presence of God. But not only does the cherubim stand there representing the presence of God, it says that he has a flaming sword that goes in every which way. And the flaming sword represents the wrath of God against man's sinfulness. Why can't man stand in the presence of God? Because of our sin. And God hates our sin. So if we're going to stand in the presence of God, we will be cut down by God's wrath against our sinfulness. So he says, if you want to get back into the garden, you've got to deal with the presence of God and his wrath against our sin. 
And we've been trying for years to get back into this perfect environment. There's something in our hearts that longs for this utopian society. We know that things are broken with the way that they are. And we've tried all these different ways to get back in the garden. But what we keep butting up against, no matter what we try, is the presence of God and God's wrath against our sin. So something's got to be done. Because nobody can stand in God's presence and nobody can bear the wrath of God. But here's the gospel. Here's the good news. You know why we call it the gospel and why we spend so much time around here talking about the gospel? Because it's good news. You know what the good news is? When we couldn't get into the garden, God came out. And he came out in the person of Jesus. And he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died so that you and I could have an opportunity to have that relationship that was broken, restored. See, it says that God came out of the garden. He came out of this perfect state. It says that Jesus came down from heaven. He didn't come down as a reigning king. He came down as a baby and he lived for 33 years and he lived sinlessly. Okay, that's important. He lived sinlessly because it's only sinlessly that somebody can stand in the presence of God. So it says that Jesus stood in the presence of God sinless. Now, now some of you might be ahead of me. You might be thinking, well, what about the sword, man? Not only does he have to face the presence of God, but he's got to deal with the sword, the wrath of God. And he did. He did on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 says this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. Jesus stood in the presence of God and he was struck down by the flaming sword of God's wrath against man's sinfulness. But when the sword struck him, it broke. It says that God was pleased to crush him. It says that he struck Jesus, sinless God-man for our sin. And the sword broke. And now, you and I, sinless, rebellious humanity, through Jesus, who stands in the presence of God and bore God's wrath for our sin, we have hope to one day re-enter the garden. That's the good news. That's the good news. All of these things that we're chasing to try to make a perfect society, none of those things are going to work. The only thing that's going to work is Jesus. And when we stand before God, we claim Jesus. The sinless man killed for our transgressions, raised to life by God. And through his sacrifice, one day we'll get back in. Would you bow your heads with me? God provided Jesus to redeem us from the consequence of our sin. God provided Jesus to redeem us from the consequence of our sin. So I don't, I don't know how this message struck you this morning. I don't, I don't know how the Holy Spirit chose to push this on your heart, but, but here's just what I want to say. If you're trusting in anything else, it's ultimately going to fail you. It's ultimately going to fail. It's only through 
Jesus and his perfect sacrifice that we can have the relationship that God designed us for restored. So in just a few minutes, I'm going to be in the back and, and Pastor Charlie will be back in the back. And we'd love to talk with you, man, if, if you'd love to talk more about Jesus and what that looks like. But I just want to pray uh, right now in this room, just for everybody who's here, for myself, that this week that we would look to Jesus to satisfy, that we would look to Jesus to be our righteousness. We would look to Jesus to be our hope of one day having our relationship restored with God. We, we can have that now. We can have that peace now, but it helps us to look forward to a better day knowing that God will set all things right and he's done, through, done so through Jesus. Lord, we love you and we're just thankful for this morning. And God, I'm thankful for the way that you engage us through your word. And God, I just pray that this morning for anybody in here who's trusting in something else, they're trusting in their marriage, they're trusting in their job, they're trusting in their abilities. God, that this morning you would just convict their hearts to trust in Jesus. Father, thank you that when we could not get into the garden, you came out. And God, we know that even now, Father, you're not, you're building a city, a city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And Father, we look forward to the day that we stand in your presence, not claiming our own gifts or talents or abilities or works, but God, we stand in your presence claiming Jesus, only Jesus. May he be honored, glorified, and magnified in our worship, in our lives, and everything that we do. In his name we pray. Amen.